Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. continuing today a sermon series uh, that we've been in for the past few months in the book of Exodus. And uh, we come today to a, uh, it's really one of my favorite little sections of Exodus. Uh, It's one that you can almost skip over uh, in the midst of all the instructions for the tabernacle and its building. Um, But we're going to meet two of my favorite people uh, in the book of Exodus, two men named Bezalel and Oholiab. And uh, if you haven't heard of Bezalel and Oholiab, you will in just a minute. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. We are in Exodus chapter 31, reading today verses 1 through 11. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. This is God's word. It is absolutely true and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. There's one uh, kind of basic point that I want you to get today, that I want us to see today from the life of these two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, and that is that your life matters to God, and that what you do with your life matters to God and to the building of his kingdom on this earth. I don't think most of us uh, naturally believe that. Uh, We feel so often so small and insignificant uh, compared to all that we see going on around us. Uh, We know our own weaknesses and flaws. Uh, We know uh, and feel regularly, like every day, the limits of our own abilities. We uh, go to work and bump into uh, a to-do list that we can't quite get done every single day. Uh, We struggle uh, sometimes to wake up and go to work on Monday morning uh, with any real sense that what we're doing on Monday morning is connected in some kind of way to the God that we worshiped on Sunday morning, that the kingdom that we prayed and and sang about that God would establish, that that has anything at all to do with the way that we're about to go and spend 40 to 60 hours of our work week. In a recent national survey of 18 to 24-year-olds, that's how young I like to think of myself, uh, they were talking to them about what it takes to be a real adult, 
And most of these young people identified having a purpose in life as being what would make them finally feel like a real adult. More than 86% of young adults say that making decisions in line with their purpose makes them an adult, according to a national survey. But only 43% say they actually have a clear picture of what they want in life. 36% say their career path aligns with a life purpose. And only 30% say that they know why they are here. This adds up to a crisis of purpose in our world, right? If you have this sense that there's, there's a purpose out there and that if my life lined up with it, if I could just find my purpose, then I would have meaning and fulfillment, my job would be better. And yet so few actually feel like we can touch it, right? This is why increasingly, you know, um, my dad uh, worked for one company his entire life. I uh, was hired uh, pretty recently out of college and then stayed with them until, well, no, that's not entirely true. He did switch uh, later in life. But for 20, 30 years, worked for the same company. By contrast, most of us uh, will switch jobs and even switch careers multiple times over the course of our lives, looking, many of us, for some kind of settled purpose. Well, friends, one of the things that the gospel gives us, one of the things that the scriptures give us is a story. Right? One of the reasons we lack purpose in our culture and in our world is because we've lost sense of the fact that anything has any meaning at all, right? that there is some kind of coherent meaning and design and purpose behind the world. And yet the Scriptures tell us that we live in this big story, this story that began at creation, that persists through a fall and a ruin and sin, and that will push forward until God's ultimate redemption of all things. And that our lives, every waking bit of our lives, our work and our family and our prayer and our, our friendships and our neighborhoods, that all of it has to find its purpose as a part of that larger story. And so today we're going to meet these two unsung heroes of the Bible, Bezalel and Aholiab. Bezalel and Aholiab won't make uh, most of your children's storybook Bibles. It's unlikely uh, that you read that story growing up. While people name their children biblical names, and we have Caleb's and Joshua's and James's and Luke's, it's unlikely that we have any Bezalel and Aholiab's. If you name your child Aholiab, you can rest assured he won't need his last initial to be distinguished from his classmates. These people are so easily and often overlooked when we tell the story of the Bible. And yet these are unsung heroes, ordinary men of extraordinary skill, empowered by God's Holy Spirit to do what on the outside looks like everyday ordinary work, craftsmanship, making things out of wood and textiles, making things out of stone, working with their hands, the ability to plan a building project. Ordinary people of extraordinary skill. They're not the kind of leaders that we often think of in the Bible. These men uh, are not Moses, uh, right? They're not kings. They're not priests. They're not prophets. They're craftsmen given a very significant job to do in God's kingdom. And so the first thing I want to see from this is that there are no insignificant people in the kingdom of God. There are no insignificant people in the kingdom of God. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. 
I love that little detail that God calls these two men by name, that he singles them out, that he knows their name. He knows and has arranged their life such that they've possessed these skills and abilities. Right? Think about what these guys' lives had been like up to this point. Right? These were men who were certainly born in slavery in Egypt. These were men who honed their craft, their skill of working with stone and wood and textile, building for probably the Egyptian nobility and their gods. These were men who were raised in exile, in slavery, whose fathers were also raised in slavery. And yet God never once, never for a moment, lost sight of them. He didn't lose them in the crowd. He didn't lose them under the shroud of their slavery in Egypt. But God tracked them and he knew them. He knew their fathers and their mothers. He knew the life experiences that they would need when the time came for their name to be called on in this project. Friends, it's good news that there are no anonymous people in God's kingdom. Much of Exodus, uh, much of Exodus, it's Moses and the people, right? It's, it's as a people, as a whole people that they go into slavery. It's as a whole people that they come out. It is a whole people that they're covered by the blood of the Passover. It's as a people, as an Israel, that they walk through the Red Sea and follow the cloud. But it's not just Moses and Aaron and then a bunch of other people, right? They are not the pips to Moses' Gladys Knight. They are not the nameless East Street band to Moses' Bruce Springsteen. This is a named group. It's not a herd of anonymous people. While they matter as a people, while they find their purpose as a part of a larger thing, they matter to God as individuals. He knows their name. In the same way, in the New Testament, Jesus died for a people, right? He died for a church. Most of the letters of the New Testament are not written to individuals. They're written to the church, right? That we are known as a church, saved as a church. We live our lives as a church, as a people, and yet you matter to Jesus as a person, right? Jesus says that his sheep know him. He knows his sheep, and his sheep recognize his voice, and no one can snatch them from his hand. God says through the prophet Isaiah that he has called each and every one of us by name and that we belong to him. Some of us in this room have been through some dark, dark times. Right? Some of us have been through some places and gone to some places where it would be easy for us to think that God had lost track of us. That, yeah, yeah, God knows everything about everybody, but he didn't follow me here. He didn't see me during this chapter of, of my life. He did, his eyes didn't penetrate this particular darkness. We've lived in darkness. Some of us have known what it feels like to have darkness inside of us that seems overwhelming. And yet, friends, Jesus never loses track of us. He knows us and he calls us by name. And for many of us, this is the hardest thing to believe. Uh, this is one of the stumbling blocks of faith for many of us. To go from believing God loves people to believing God loves me. Right? To go from believing Jesus died for sinners to believing Jesus died for me. That my name was on his heart. That for love of me and inclusion of me within his church community, that he died. That faith is always personal. It's always uh, moving from the general, there is a God, and if there is a God, he must be loving. 
to I need a Savior. And I need him to know me by name. And if he doesn't, then I'm without hope. And faith latches on to that and says, Jesus, I need you to be for me who you are, a God of saving grace and love and mercy. I too need to be included in your mercy and under your blood. There are no insignificant people in the kingdom of God. Secondly, there is no insignificant work in the kingdom of God. Verse 3, I have filled them with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. You know, the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament uh, is one that's kind of shrouded in mystery, right? We know that the Spirit was present uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, we think actually from the very first, first pages of the Old Testament when the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep right, in creation, that the Spirit is there, that the Spirit comes on particular people at particular times. But there is much about the Spirit that's somewhat shrouded in the Old Testament. It seems that in the Old Testament, the Spirit uh, is mostly used in the anointing of particular people for important work, right? So the Spirit comes on kings before they take uh, over their rule. The Spirit comes on the prophets, and gives them their message. The Spirit comes to anoint particular people for particular work. And yet, throughout the Old Testament, there's this forward-looking prophecy that it would not always be this way, right? That the Spirit one day will be poured out on all people. Joel chapter 2, in that day, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, on your sons and your daughters alike, right? So there was always this hope that what existed in somewhat of a shroud of mystery the spirit that seemed to come and come on certain people for certain tasks would in an increased and deeper measure fall on all people. This is, of course, what the New Testament says happens uh, in the gift of Pentecost when the flames of fire come on ordinary men and women, giving them the power to live lives of extraordinary mission. We see in the New Testament uh, the spirit gifting the people of God for the mission of God. Right, multiple times in the New Testament, we get these lists of spiritual gifts. Uh, we see it in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, things like teaching and evangelism and mercy and leadership. Right, that there are these spiritual gifts that come on the church for particular spiritual tasks. And this, this story seems to point forward. It seems to be a bit of an outlier in the Old Testament. Men who didn't hold uh, royal or prophetic office being given the Holy Spirit to use their gifts for the upbuilding of God's temple. Their gifts are somewhat different than the ones listed in the New Testament. And I love this, actually, because it indicates, it suggests that not just the gifts that we identify as spiritual, right? Not just gifts that we think of as churchly gifts, Gifts like evangelism and mercy and preaching and things like that. But skills, wisdom, cultivated abilities can actually also be the place where God's Spirit gifts us. The place where heaven touches earth and the Spirit enables us to do particular work that God's given us to do. Even, uh, and I love this here, even ordinary work of the hands Right, work that sadly oftentimes in the Christian tradition has been minimized. 
right? We tend to look at the, uh, the gifts of preachers and missionaries and people who do church work and to look over the people uh, who are no less gifted for work that is no less spiritual, no less significant or meaningful than the ordinary show up, work a nine to five kind of job. The work that we struggle to find spiritual meaning and significance in. God says here, no, no, that is a gift of my spirit that I've given you to do meaningful work that matters in the world. David Grussell is an architect. Uh, he's a Christian. He designed, um, for you baseball fans, he designed Minuteman, not Minuteman, Minute Maid Park in Houston where the Astros play and also PNC Ballpark in Pittsburgh where the Pirates play. Uh, the stadium in Pittsburgh is regularly ranked uh, as the best ballpark in Major League Baseball. If you've ever been there, it's beautiful. It, has a, uh, it opens up on the rivers, right, the, right there where the three rivers in Pittsburgh meet. You can see the Clemente Bridge, that kind of iconic yellow bridge in Pittsburgh there over the outfield. He was asked in an interview why as a Christian uh, he took his work so seriously, why he did this kind of work of building ballparks and office buildings and uh, public spaces instead of building churches. And he said this, he says that Christianity is a program for human flourishing and architecture is a means for creating places for people to flourish. Right, that, that, that Christianity, it's a whole lot more than this, but it is the ultimate vision for where people will flourish, right? Our call is to love our God, but also to love our neighbors, to seek their well-being and their wholeness and their flourishing. And he sees his job as creating spaces where human beings can flourish where a kid can take in his first baseball game with his family, where uh, a ballpark can become an integral part of a city's common life. Christianity is a program for human flourishing. It's easy maybe, to, you think, to see how you might feel that way if you were the architect in charge of building the ballpark. But if that's true, then it's also true that painting the concrete, mowing the grass, designing the parking lot, that every, if any of our work matters, then all of our work matters. Because all of it uh, is adding a brick to something that contributes ultimately to the love of our neighbors. This means that all of our work is intrinsically spiritual. That all of our work is taken up under Jesus' call to be his disciples. And to love our God and to love our neighbor. Remember, Adam and Eve were created to work. Right? Before there was sin, there was work. Right? Work isn't a part of the fall, although tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off, it might feel that way. Right? But work is a part of what you were created to do. It's part of the way that God crea created human beings to do His work on His behalf in the world. Now, because of sin, we're told that there will be groaning in our work. Right? Adam, a farmer, is going to have to deal with thorns and thistles. It's by the sweat of his brow that he'll make his living, right? So there is work becomes toil because of sin, but our work matters. So of course God pours out his spirit to enable us to do his work for his glory in our world. So there's no insignificant people. There's no insignificant work. And then finally, all of us have been given a part to play in God's one great building project, right? You know, each of us, 
have different jobs, right? Some of us are, are unemployed or underemployed right now, and we're struggling to find meaning in our work. Others of us tomorrow will go to desk jobs. Others of us will go to building sites. Uh, some of us will go um, to a restaurant. Some of us will go to a hospital. Some of us will go to a school, right? That all of us, our careers, after we leave this place, we're going to do like this and go into a million, well, not a million, a little over a hundred, uh, different places uh, of business to go about our work. But we are a part of one great building project that God enlists all of his children into the, into the construction project of building the kingdom of God, of making his invisible kingdom visible in this world. And the way that we do that, the, the, the primary way that we seek the kingdom of God is by building his church. Right? We're told that the church is a foretaste of God's kingdom. That the church is a sign, instrument, and foretaste of the future in the present. That what God is doing in the world is building his church in every little corner of this world, in every nook and cranny of the globe, in every language, in every tribe, tongue, and people. That God is building his church in order that it can make disciples that take his grace into every bit of their lives. That God's kingdom comes through his church. That's why if you read the book of Acts, what we find there, Paul doesn't launch an evangelistic crusade, although there's loads of evangelism in the book of Acts. Peter doesn't just breeze through a city, share the gospel, drop some literature, and then move on. No, they plant churches. They build fellowships. They, they appoint other pastors and elders to, to lead in churches because the church is the foretaste of the kingdom. The church is meant to be the hope of the world. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is poured out to build up the church. The Spirit's not primarily about our individual subjective experience of God but about empowering us to build his kingdom and to expand his church. Now, this might make you think, well, does that mean, you just told me that it's not just the work that I do in the church, but my work that I do in the world that matters. And I think it's important here to understand that there is, there's two aspects to the church's work. Herman Bovink, who's a Dutch Reformed theologian, talked about it this way. He talked about the difference between the church as an institute and the church as an organism. Institute and organism. What does that mean? It means that as an institute, there's what the church does when it gathers together. And then as an organism, there's all that the church does when it's sent out, when it's sent out into its work, into its neighborhood, into all of the places where we live our lives. And you are empowered by the Spirit to witness to God's kingdom by your work, both in the church's gathered life and when we scatter and you go into where you're going to spend the other six days of your week. Gathered and scattered. We need your gifts in the gathered church. We need your gifts to keep the mission of this church thriving. And this church has been extraordinarily blessed because of people like Bezalel and Aholiab, right? People who picked up skills through their lives who learned trades, who, who came into this church with certain abilities and who said, let me chip in there. If this church was limited to what I could do in my abilities, oh, what a tragic uh, affair that would be. 
If we were limited even just to the gifts and abilities of our elders, we'd be limited. If we were limited just to the gifts and abilities of our elders, deacons, deaconesses, and staff, we still would not capture all that's needed for the body of Christ to function. A couple of people, just to show you kind of how this works in practice. When we, when we moved into this building, Joe Hodgins, sitting right over there, <laughs> uh, he, he was our contractor who did the work in this building, who helped us renovate this church and get it ready, and then he became a member of our church. These gifts that he has, these skills that he has, he's used to bless us. I didn't realize what a gift of Jesus it was the day that Cynthia Eads retired from her, uh, from her job. I don't know where Cynthia is. I know she's in here. Cynthia retired from a career as an accountant and then has since been helping me get my life in order uh, and helping us get our church in order uh, from a financial and HR and all of the systems that it takes to run the business end of a church. And those are just two people, there's, there's countless of you that have used the skills, abilities, and trades that you've learned and have said, I want these things to matter here, to use those to build this church. But it also matters as you go out into your scattered callings that you take your gifts, your abilities, and go and use them in every bit of the world. You know, the church as institution, uh, our, our mission is really relatively quite narrow. Right? There's really only so much that church as organization can do. We exist, uh, according to Jesus' charter, to make disciples. Right, to help men, women, and children come in and to worship Jesus and to grow in their faith. To learn to, to witness to Him in their words and in their lives. That the, you know, the, the job of the church and what our staff do and what our elders do, it's, it's necessarily narrow. We can't do everything that needs doing in the world. But the calling of the individual Christian is as broad as every single field of human endeavor. Arts and business and justice and healthcare and all of it belongs to Jesus, and he sends us out into it. Because there is not an inch of this world that doesn't matter to him and that he doesn't claim as his own. Our mission as a church is to see and to display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. To see and to display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. To do that, it takes every single one of us using our gifts and our heart and our emotions and our prayers and our energy to build something good and true and beautiful, both when we gather and when we scatter. The mission of the church has been hard lately. Not just our church, but the mission of the church uh, has been hard lately. Lately, uh, it feels kind of like you're trying to build a cathedral while there's tornadoes going on around you, right? That doesn't seem like the safest job to do. But you're trying to build something that will endure for generations and then all of a sudden a tornado of COVID comes along and you don't see people for a while. We've had political storms and cultural storms swirling all around us. Sometimes the storms even whirl up inside of us. And it can be dangerous business to try to build something together uh, in the midst of something like that. But let's remember that our calling is to build something for Jesus. Something that reflects a bit of his truth, beauty, and goodness in our city. And it's not a project for 2019, 2020, 2021. It is a decades-long project, by God, you know, we pray, that will endure for generations as a testimony to Jesus 
to his reconciling power, to his grace, to his mercy, to his kingdom. I read a story recently that gave me some hope in this regard. Uh, and Tony Gowdy was uh, probably the greatest, I've got a lot of architecture uh, illustrations today. He was one of the great architects of the last uh, century. Uh, he built, or he's dead, but I guess is still building, uh, probably the single most amazing creation of human hands that I've ever seen personally, uh, the Cathedral of La Grada Familia in Barcelona. He, uh, it, was, it was his life's work. Uh, it got to a point where it was so all-consuming that he just lived there. Uh, he just lived in the middle of this building project. It's a, it's a beautiful scene that, uh, that's built to reflect uh, the imagery of creation that contains scenes from the entire redemptive work uh, story of the Bible. And he worked on it, uh, this overwhelming project, into his old age. Uh, and then one day, nearby, crossing a street, he was hit by a tram, a streetcar, uh, and died. Uh, he was unrecognized by the people that found him. And he was carried to uh, the, the public hospital, uh, and there he died. And when he died in 1926, it's estimated that about 15 to 25% of the cathedral was actually finished. Um, it's since been worked on by a team of other architects, designers, and artists who've taken his plans and added their own. Uh, the Spanish government has continued to kind of push back the deadline of when they think it's going to happen. This, if you know Spanish culture, this isn't entirely surprising. Um, but they keep kind of pushing it back. But they're new, they're, they promise now uh, that it's going to be finished in 2026, 100 years after the death uh, of its architect. The story is a reminder that all the important work takes centuries, right? All the important work uh, will outstrip our lifetimes will be the work of future generations, but that we build now towards it. That if you're really building something that matters, something bigger than yourself, it'll take a while. When asked about his slow progress on the church, Gowdy had a joke that he liked to make. He said, my client is patient, uh, referring to God. <laughs> Our client is patient. God has been building his kingdom. Jesus has been building his church and gathering her in for 2,000 years. Jesus has made certain promises that the very gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And we have reason to believe him. God is patient. He's patient in his labors. And he's building something in this world that will radiate with his glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have, we believe, called us to something that really matters. That our lives have purpose and they matter in the overall scope of what you're doing in this world. Your purpose is so much bigger than our little church. But our little church is a part of a cosmic body that stretches from one end of the earth to the other. That stretches uh, from eternity past into eternity future. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have enlisted us into some work that really matters. And that all of the work of our hands, loving our neighbors and doing our jobs and raising our families and nurturing our marriages and building our friendships, that all of this matters in your kingdom. 
And so, Lord, as we sang earlier, we simply pray now that you would establish the work of our hands, that you would take our work as limited, as foolish, as weak as it often is, and use it, Lord Jesus, to build something beautiful and enduring. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.